talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Last night, we heard the fireworks from Diwali celebrations around the neighborhood. Glad to hear life returning. Here's Scott Thompson. Hey, you know, that's not a horn song. That's a cowbell song. That's a whole different discussion there. Uh, good afternoon. It is 308. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. Will is on the board. Uh, Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks in the newsroom. Ted picking the song yep. today again, once again, because uh, it was his birthday yesterday. Yep. And, and frankly, you know, he's on a roll. So what the heck? So this is a cowbell song, uh, Ted, not a, uh, well, you know, a horn section. Not heavy so song. much cowbell. It's more like the incredible drum, the from uh, Don Brewer and and his vocal. Um, uh, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. Will, can you record this? Uh, can, Ted, can you do the drum again? <laughs> that hurts my jaw. That's fantastic. <laughs> that is going to come back to haunt you throughout the course of the day in a magical loop, just like uh, Grapple. Uh, anyway. All right, that's perfect. We've got the fun stuff for the show already set in the first 30 seconds. Anyway. Uh, anyway, uh, another great pick. Did you have a great birthday yesterday? Hopefully that was all great. Yeah, uh, uh, very quiet, but that's fine. Um, as a matter of fact, mm. I, I got a call from somebody uh, we know last night saying, hey, I heard all the songs you picked uh, Great job, happy birthday, everything else. So anyway, nice oh, to that's know. great. So so this and, and one. Apparently, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I was just going to say Scott Radley had no idea it was your birthday. By the way, well, good <laughs> because Radley would have been all over it. So that's good. No, this song. Um, I, you know, I, lately I've been thinking more and more and more about my career and people I've interviewed. I interviewed Mark Farner from Grand Funk, formerly from Grand oh, wow. Funk, about a couple of years ago. Just a, an incredible interview. And I really love that song. And I heard it the other day and I thought, yeah, this is really good. And interestingly, and I don't know if it made the news, when they sing the line, Sweet, Sweet Connie, she actually was a real person. She passed away um, on, on August 21st. So Connie, oh, wow. Connie Hamsey, who was Sweet Connie, uh, and maybe Will can play that later, but she actually, um, she passed away. It's unfortunate. What, 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 what are you doing reading news? You should be you should be spinning. You should be. You take the DJ of the newsroom. You get it out onto the airwaves here. This is all gold. We're not uh, being privy to. I mean, this is amazing information you're bringing to us on a daily basis. You know, I uh, I I research and I you know I. There you go. You're a stuff. news guy. The province plans to eventually offer booster doses of a COVID nineteen vaccine to all residents, but a bunch of new priority groups become eligible this weekend, starting at eight tomorrow morning. This includes those seventy and older who are at higher risk of waning immunity at about six months after. The second shot. Healthcare workers and designated essential caregivers, those living in Indigenous communities, and anyone who received two doses of an AstraZeneca vaccine. Bookings can be made several ways, including through the province's online portal and through select pharmacies. Ontario's top doctor says the boosters aren't mandatory and there are no plans to add it to the vaccine certificate system. Two doses will be acceptable to be able to get you in to any of the venues that currently have any restrictions on them. Dr. Kira Moore says it's still a good idea to get a booster because COVID isn't going away and will most likely become an annual winter virus. Sandy Salerno, Global News. There you have it. Uh, a big weekend if you're 70 plus because uh, you can uh, line up and get your booster. And of course, uh, we all remember that the pharmacists were a great part of this campaign uh, when vaccine did become available and of course are continuing to do that with the bo- uh, booster program as well. Let's bring in Bupinder Nagra, pharmacist with the Shoppers Drug Mart at 1300 Gar- uh, Garth Street in Hamilton and with us now. Bupinder, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So are you ready for all of this? What are you anticipating when uh, it opens up to those 70-plus, Bupinder? We are already getting calls, and we have started giving our appointments, and starting tomorrow we have the booster dose on, and the people are starting to come into our stores. And we have the capacity, and we are ready for it. That is perfect. Uh, now, uh, we remember the first time out that there was issues with supply and such. Has all that been resolved, Bupender? Do we have to worry about this anymore as we move into the next phase of this? 
Very honestly, you know what, we haven't had any supply issues. In fact, in the last month or so when the flu shot was coming in, we just had to um, pivot for a bit and stop the supplies and uh, we were uh, trying to prepare for the flu shot. But right now, flu shots are available, COVID vaccines are available. We are getting back uh, each week we get the shipment on Thursdays and I don't anticipate any supply issues. Uh, I don't think you can answer this, Bupinder, but any idea, like we're at 70 as of this weekend, 70 plus, and then we remember, uh, you know, in our first and second shots that it was lowering in age and so on and so forth. Are we going to go through the same thing uh, with this, with the booster, and any idea how long it will be between, say, the 70 plus and then next, the 65 plus? You know what, hard to answer in terms of how much time, but definitely I think it'll be the phased approach as we had it uh, when the vaccine began. So I'm sure as we get the 70 plus in maybe within a week or 10 days, we'll see 65 and so on and so forth. And a lot of this really, and the reason for the way we're starting is the people that we're doing now got their shots first, right? So they were, those are waning faster than those that say got their shot in, in the, in the summer or latter part of the summer. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So how does the flu shot fit into this? Because we remember last year we were concerned about how with COVID-19 and then the flu, nobody knew what was going to happen with that and, and how uh, how uh, extensive the flu season would be. And then it turned out it was a bit less than what it normally is because there was so much protocol in place yeah. and we were doing the right thing around COVID. What are you anticipating this year? Because obviously uh, restrictions have relaxed a bit. We're certainly seeing a vast majority of people that are getting vaccinated. What are you expecting with the flu this year? Uh, you know what? With the masks on, right, so our exposure is already less, right? So even last year, we had lesser of the flu because we were very careful going out, right, and lesser people were going out. But uh, right now, it's the time to get the full protection on. Who knows when the masks come off, whenever they do come off, what kind of things we are going to be seeing, right? Is, is our immunity good enough? Right, because we will be exposing to the environment again. So right now, it's it's time to get both COVID shots and flu shots, and just get ready for it. So obviously, uh, the push on to make sure everybody gets the flu shot this year as well. Uh, do you? I think a lot of people, a lot more people, got the flu shot last year, uh, simply because than the year before, simply because of the concern around COVID. Do you still Absolutely. anticipate the demand to be as great this year? Yeah, we, we do. We do. We, we see people are a little more calmer, right? So last mm. year, there was also uh, people were scared. COVID chart was not around. And then they were also scared with the supplies last for the flu vaccine or not. But this year, people have a bit of confidence that supplies are there. So we see a regular uptake every day. Even today in my store, I think I've done easily um, 20 to 30 flu shots in the morning itself and they were people coming regularly so we see them coming every day yes not the lineups as we had the last year but they are every day in the stores so obviously this weekend 70 plus for the booster with the flu shot can anybody get those now absolutely and do you have to book for those or can you do this on a walk-in you have to book them like you do for the COVID 19 uh flu shots are walk-in right right so Whenever we get any calls, we do try to give appointments, but anybody walking in is more than welcome, and people are walking in and they are getting the flu shots, right? So it may be a little bit of wait time, just like a prescription, but they yeah. are being accommodated by all the stores. For the COVID, still, we like the appointment because once we puncture the vial, we have a certain window to consume the whole uh, vaccine um, because uh, we don't want to get any wastage done, right? Uh, Bupinder, what about when uh, the time around getting the flu shot or getting your vaccine? Does it matter if these two overlap? Do you have to have a certain amount of space between your updated booster and your flu shot? Does that matter? They, they can be had at the same time. It doesn't matter. Uh, so, yeah, both at the same time with one-stop shopping. That's good to know. Yeah. All right, so um, we book the COVID-19 vaccination boosters through the exact same way we did last time. That's through either the uh, the Ontario portal or through your individual shopper's uh, drug mart or any pharmacy. It's the same that way as it was uh, with the earlier vaccines, correct? Correct, correct. and it, 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 it's much better and it's more efficient this time. 
And then with the boosters, different story. Uh, if you want to book, you can, but there is walk-up service available for a boost for a sorry right. a flu yeah, shot. Okay, Pfizer. Um, we we try to book because it only gives us six hours window to mitigate the wasted. With right. Moderna, we didn't have those issues, right? So we have a bigger window. People can walk in um, with Moderna vaccine. All right, Bupinder Nagra with us, pharmacist with a Shoppers Drug Mart at 1300 Garth Street in Hamilton, preparing, getting ready for uh, this weekend. And uh, the the, uh, the categories opening up for those that are eligible for a booster, and that being 70-plus, also two shots of AstraZeneca are eligible, and, of course, healthcare staff. And anyone who really got uh, their first and second shots earlier uh, than everybody else, and, of course, it will go down as it normally does. Bupinder, thanks for the time. you got a busy weekend ahead of you good luck thank you very much take it all the best all right we certainly know the issues that have been surrounding uh canada's military and sexual assault allegations and what has transpired of late uh obviously during the last cabinet shuffle uh there was a change at the position of the minister of defense anita anand who was the former procurement minister and uh was responsible for bringing bringing vaccines in uh is now in charge of the military as the new defense minister and has stated that now uh these uh, cases of sexual and misconduct are going to go through the civilian justice system as opposed through as opposed to through the military process let's bring in christian leprac professor at both the royal military college of canada and queen's university and a fellow at the mcdonald laurier institute and is with us now christian thanks for the time i hope you're well i am indeed good afternoon scott uh, great to chat with you again, and I've been dying to ask you about this, Christian, and what your thoughts are. Obviously, a big task ahead for the new defense minister, the first thing, to move these cases to a civilian justice system. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think she's learning the department the hard way, just how complicated this organization is, because this move was the result of a leak uh, of uh, uh, Justice Arbour's recommendation. And so uh, it effectively tied her hands. And so she had to make a decision. I would say probably the decision in itself is probably more uh, theater than sort of concrete, uh, uh, real concrete, genuine sort of change within the organization. Nonetheless, I think it sends a signal that this is a minister who's prepared to make decisions. And this is a minister who's prepared to signal that civilians are ultimately in charge of the Department of National Defense, not the uniforms, and that we live in a democracy, that uh, there's a new boss in town, and uh, that she intends to uh, lay down the law in terms of uh, how things are going to work. What do you mean about the leak? This was leaked out? Yeah, so I, this is, uh, I think, as often happens in national defense or in other government organizations, I think this was uh, not the time when the minister had intended to make this announcement. Uh, but uh, as uh, as material sort of becomes public, uh, then it means that the minister has to move on it. So it became public that uh, Judge Arbour had made a recommendation. Uh, and so that meant the minister had to uh, had to make a decision. And I mean, it, it ties the minister's hands because the minister either has to show that the government is prepared to follow through in that recommendation or that the government's going to sit on it. Uh, and clearly, this is the same recommendation that was made six years ago. Uh, one of the eight recommendations that the Canadian right. Armed Forces eight year, uh, six years ago did not adopt. Uh, and so I think it would have probably uh, looked uh, uh, rather uh, not very favorable on a new minister uh, if the same recommendation that Judge Arbour made urgently for the department to follow through uh, had not been actioned expeditiously. How significant is this? How difficult is this? Uh, I think this is a, it's a challenging, uh, it, the minister finds herself, I think, in a very challenging situation. Um, and uh, I think this is a big department. It's a very complex department. It's 100,000 people. It's $23 billion budget, about a quarter of the federal government's direct program spending, a department that, of course, is vital to Canada's interests. Um, but uh, it's also an issue that uh, many of the challenges that the department is facing are ultimately legal issues. Um, and so it's interesting to have a high-flying law professor in charge because she would understand the legal issues. Uh, and so uh, her learning curve on those issues would be a lot flatter than it might be for other ministers. I think it's also interesting to see that um, uh, but we've 
before when we had a minister with military experience, we had someone who uh, at least often was perceived by members as trying to muddle through and not make decisions. Uh, now we have a minister with no uh, military experience who's prepared to step in and make uh, clear decisions. I think it shows that in the Westminster system, you want to have ministers who are not subject matter experts in the departments that they're running mm. precisely because they can come at it sort of with a with a sober second thought um, on what they intend to do. And I think the minister here had an opportunity to send a very clear signal. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, what other moves she's going to make, because one of the big challenges for the women, men and diverse members in uniform, I think, has been the loss of trust and the loss of confidence, not just in the uniformed senior leadership, but also in the political leadership of the department, that is to say the minister. And so I think these sorts of moves, uh, even though they may be more symbolic than substantive, um, uh, go a long way, I think, to restoring that trust and that confidence. Why not like five years ago? Uh, what does this say about the former defense minister? Why now? Well, so I think governments inherently are always reticent to interfere in the autonomy of professions in general, because a profession by definition is a self-governing um, institution. Um, and so the minister essentially trusted the Canadian Armed Forces to look after the challenge, that they were the best positioned uh, within. And, and this is, all, of course, also the authority that the chiefs of the defense staff at the time asserted. And the chiefs of the defense staff always assert that it is their responsibility and their autonomy to deal with matters matters for the women, men, and diverse members in uniform. And of course, we learned the hard way, once again, that the Canadian Armed Forces was not in a position and did not have the expertise to do this. They did not consult externally. They cooked up a policy internally, and we all know what came of that. And so I think here's sort of the, the opportunity. What the government is doing right this time is not just having an outside consultation, but also talking to stakeholders. But I think the minister is signaling here that this is a policy that is not going to be left up to the Canadian Armed Forces to resolve for itself, that the minister will take very active uh, uh, measures in this regard. And of course, that's what I've long called for. If you call our previous conversations about the Somalia affair, David Colinette, subsequently Minister Doug Young, implementing the 12-point plan on, on Somalia with a ministerial monitoring committee. And I think this is going to be required here if we're going to put an end to these ongoing challenges of professional conduct and institutional culture. Only got about 30 seconds left here, Christian. How is this being received by the rank and file? I think the minister had to send a signal that uh, she understands the organization, she understands the challenges, but also a signal, I think, to the whole organization, because there's always this dispute about who's in charge, the chief defense staff, the deputy minister or the minister, that this is a minister who understands this file, who understands this file requires clear leadership and clear direction from the political authority, and that she's prepared to take that risk and to provide that direction and guidance. And I think that'll be reassuring for the women, men and diverse members who serve this country so proudly. Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the McDonnell Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Sincere pleasure. Thank you, Scott, and a great weekend to you and the listeners. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we have been talking, uh, and this is uh, becoming a, a greater issue, and, and we'll, we'll try to find out why when we talk to Marcus Fowler here. But uh, it, it appears that as the global uh, pandemic continues, we're, we're seeing more and more uh, hacks and, and, uh, and ransomware situations. And, and, of course, we heard about this uh, past week with the healthcare system in Newfoundland and Labrador. And many are saying this could be one of the worst yet in Canadian history. And, uh, you know, obviously, it's you know, once you hit healthcare, it, it's affecting record systems, uh, booking systems, and, and elective surgeries and such. Um, as bad as a global pandemic. So you can see how, when it hits a healthcare system, how it is an incredibly sensitive situation and could mean life or death. Let's bring in Marcus Fowler, Director of Strategic Threat at Dark Trace, and with us now. Marcus, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, great to be here. And yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. So give us an update on this situation in Newfoundland. I mean, they're not out of this yet, are they? No, unfortunately, with these, these type of events uh, that can be so disruptive to multiple portions of a healthcare system or, or any business, you know, you, you want to stop the bleeding, certainly, and then trying to get back online, as well as what is really of, of one of the utmost importance is making sure that the attacker is no longer there or no longer able to conduct next phases of, of attacks against it. So it's a very complex problem uh, that the healthcare system is, is dealing with right now. 
And, you know, many would think, how could this happen to a hospital system? But it's happened to uh, a wide variety of companies and certainly not the only uh, hospital. Uh, but obviously, as you mentioned, we're dealing with a life and, and, and death scenarios here. Uh, how prominent is this in the healthcare system? How much are we at risk, whether we're in Hamilton or wherever? Yeah, and unfortunately, healthcare is near the top of the, the target deck for many of these attackers because uh, they have seen and they can, one, facilitate quicker and higher ransom payments if this was a ransomware event, which I don't think the healthcare system has come out yet and or the government and said that, but there are a lot of indications that it could be. So these are prime targets because of the potential you know, loss of life and societal impact, the critical nature of the data. You know, This is exactly what those cyber criminals look for in terms of being able to put a, a healthcare system kind of on their back heels, disrupt their service, enforce a higher payment and a quicker payment. Uh, so the crime gets bigger, the payment gets bigger. When these attacks become bigger, does that make it any easier to solve or just draw more attention to itself? Well, what I hope it does is stresses the point of prioritizing cybersecurity in a number of these different areas, right? Because the, the best way to get yourself out of the problem of should I pay or, or what does this mean for my my patients or my customers or my transportation system uh, is can, you know, am I prioritizing? Do I recognize the risks around that? And am I securing and defending all of that, that infrastructure and that environment? Uh, well, in most of these situations, Marcus, I mean, they have to pay, don't they, to get control of the system? There's not a lot of choice here, is there? It is a very tough, you know, decision as to in what's at stake. It does look like I believe the healthcare system was able to get some uh, portion of their environment back online. I think it was backdated about a week, which suggests to me that there was some backup systems or backup uh, storage that they were able to fall back on. But attackers are even going after those. So it is a incredibly tough situation to decide whether you're going to pay the ransomware actor, try and kind of weather the storm, which can often take weeks or months. And even if you actually pay the ransom, that doesn't turn the lights on or turn the systems yeah. on, you know, within moments. It can be a prolonged uh, way to get back, even if you've paid the ransom, which we saw with something like the colonial pipeline attack here in the U.S. So uh, the fact that, you know, once we're dealing with and you talked about the pipeline situation, I mean, there's lots of examples of this hospitals, uh, clearly situations of life and death. Does that draw any more power? Does it does it intensify the investigation or is it like them all? We're just kind of fumbling through this. And and really, the only way to to get ahead of it is to make sure you're you're secure to the to the nines here. I think it does two things. One, it it. it certainly stresses the the continuing position that I strongly believe that that ransomware is a, a national security threat, right? It is an economic threat. It is societal. So there is a, the approach and the kind of holistic both government and private sector and those partnerships are so critical. So on the defensive front, large scale attacks like this that do get a lot of headlines also have a lot of people asking why what's in place to ensure this doesn't happen again, what needs to to be kind of defensively forward to prevent it. Unfortunately, the other is that it is it draws other attackers, right? If they see success against one healthcare system in one space, mm. they might do one themselves, right? These can snowball into some type of campaign if they find success there. So for healthcare systems, you know, the risk calculus may be going up because you have this success and it may kind of draw more flies as it were and still just as impossible to solve exactly i mean it is there it is capable to stop these actors some of the best practices outside of good cyber hygiene good patching of your services is also really thinking not so much perimeter defenses but thinking about what do I understand about inside of my environment, that internal and how the business works, and how can I defend that as actively, as autonomously as possible to help security teams, right? They're already taxed by already all the activities happening within cyberspace. Sign of the Times, Marcus Fowler with us, Director of Strategic Threat at Darktrace, talking about uh, Newfoundland and Labrador's health system uh, under attack right now and how susceptible we are. We all are. Marcus, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Fantastic talking to you. 
Uh, as we remember, uh, we, we've got into a predicament with the flag uh, because obviously the flags were lowered uh, way back when to commemorate the loss in what was discovered underneath that residential school in Kamloops and have remained at half mast, uh, half staff, and, and uh, since then. But obviously now we have a situation with Remembrance Day and 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 how do you address this? Well, it looks like we have come to a solution. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Don Laval, Harvard President of the Ontario Native Women's Association and Director of the First People's Housing of Learning at Trent University and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, from my understanding, what's going to happen here is the flags will be raised back up the day before Remembrance Day and then will be lowered back down on Remembrance Day, uh, typical for all of the ceremonies that we've seen in the past. And then when they go back up, there will be the indigenous flag of every child matters, the orange flag along with that. Is that accurate? So there is protocol that says nothing can be on the same pole um, as the Canadian flag. So from what I understand, absolutely, the the flag is going back up. And, and this is really important to Indigenous veterans and Indigenous communities. Um, many people forget that the Indigenous community, the First Nations peoples of Canada, signed up voluntarily for both world yeah. wars, for many wars. So Remembrance Day means much as you know, as much to the uh, Indigenous community as it does to other Canadians. Exactly, and so you know, it's it's an honor of our veterans as well, and our communities that want to see this honor for those who lost their lives, for those who fought in the wars, and so it's really important that it go back up. And from what I understand, you know it. It's going to be lowered on Remembrance Day to provide that honor, but that after Remembrance Day, when the flag goes back to sort of normal practice, as it were, that the truth and reconciliation, that there's an orange flag for the National Council for Truth and Reconciliation, that's going to fly on Parliament, uh, somewhere on Parliament Hill, not necessarily on the same pole as the Canadian flag, because right. There is, there's protocols in place. And interestingly, many, many of our veterans are very clear about respecting those protocols for the flag that you know, they volunteered to fight for and went overseas. So the flag will be raised, but it appears at this point it will be on a different pole. Is there any consistency here across uh, legions or uh, whether it's schools or government buildings or such? Will it be the same for everyone? I don't think there's an official policy for anything yeah. beyond this was just, you know, the proposal. And this was done at the request. This is a recommendation that the Assembly of First Nations put forward, asking that that flag go back up to honor all of the veterans. Mm. So that, you know, when the prime minister says that he was, that it would stay at half mass until indigenous leadership are happy to raise it again. I don't think anybody's happy about anything in this. I, I don't think that's the appropriate words. I mean, I think we want to honor and we want to remember and we want to have appropriate opportunities to provide that honor and tribute to our Indigenous veterans as well, and as well as all of the veterans. So so we have sort of stumbled... is going to have to decide and, and hopefully follow the example of what takes place on Parliament Hill. We sort of stumbled into this situation. Should this have been done on the very first Truth and Reconciliation Day? I mean, sh- this would have been a perfect ceremony, something completely different, uh, adding a flag or or what have you. Uh, and instead, it sort of collided with Remembrance Day, which is really why we've got to this position in the amount of time that we have, because no- uh, November 11th is obviously Remembrance Day. But should this have been done on September 30th, the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation? Well, where were you to advise the Prime Minister? That would have been brilliant. (laughs) I mean, I I think this is part of the challenge, that when we had our National Day of Reconciliation, everybody across the country, and, you know, including, obviously, the Prime Minister, this is our first time going through the National Day of Reconciliation, and many, many of us, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, are not sure what that means, are not sure how to... Um, how to respond, how to memorialize, because it's it's not a holiday per se. It's not a taken mm. fireworks kind of day, as we've talked about. You don't say, you know, happy orange shirt day. It's it's a very solemn, dignity, remembering, honor, honoring day. And I, I'm really hoping that every community across the country and many of our elders are 
planning on spending the next year determining what that's going to look like for next year, including you know, the Assembly of First Nations saying that we need to honor one of those, uh, the TRC calls to action saying we need a national memorial where people can go on September 30th and honor those children who survived and those who didn't never made it home from the residential school. That's a valid point, Don. There is really no official protocol for the first Na- Truth and Reconciliation Day or for the second because there wasn't really any in the first. So it'll be fascinating to see how this flag is incorporated into the actual Truth and Reconciliation Day when it falls on September 30th. There's a whole new ceremony next year, I'm guessing. Well, that's it. And, and I think it's, it needs to be a ceremony that honors you know, all of our distinct First Nations across the country, you know, and recognizes that there were many Métis children that were put into the schools when they weren't full. You know, there were many Inuit who went into the residential schools. So all of those communities need to be part of the conversation about what that ceremony looks like, what that honoring looks like across the country next year on September 30th. And I think we best get started planning that right now because it's it's going to be a very delicate conversation. I think the first thing you should do is uh, send an invitation to the prime minister to make sure that he actually attends this time uh, so he can fit it into his calendar. Get for a wedding? Yeah, (laughs) same sort of thing. Uh, Don, thanks for the time. Dr. Don LaBelle, Harvard with us, president of the Ontario Native Women's Association and the director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University on the solution in regard to the flag on Remembrance Day. Doctor, thanks uh, very much. Be well. You're very welcome. Take care. It is 527 again. You know, here is another self-inflicted wound by our dozy prime minister. This would have been an excellent way to celebrate the very first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. But instead, he was goofing off in Tofino, and now it is bashed into Remembrance Day, taking away from the day that it was meant for Truth and Reconciliation and the day that was meant for Remembrance Day. Thanks again, Mr. Prime Minister. You're speaking for all Canadians. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Big round table. Welcome. Good to have you all here. And uh, we'll start with the poll question of the day. Uh, man, we talk about this twice a year, every year, and I have every waking moment of my adult life, it appears. Uh, the poll question of the day, should we be getting rid of, of daylight savings time? And the, fi- the weird thing here on the poll question of the day, and it's not highly scientific, let's be honest, 75% are saying yes. So, I don't know, Ted, you want to weigh in on this? To me, it's an argument every year that we always end up in the same position, but for some reason we haven't. I mean, who cares? Well, the question is, why did this start? Apparently it started way, what, back in the 30s or 40s, something about During the war. Farm, farmers and stuff and, you know, I, you know whatever. I, it'll be a shock on Sunday night when it's 5 o'clock and you look outside your door and it's black. You know, yeah, it's just that's the drag. sky. Um, so, I, w- yes, why are we having this every year? We know what happens. You spring back, you know, you fall uh, or fall back, spring ahead. Uh, in other words, I, your I'm clocks go back. Now, no, no, spring forward, fall back. Spring, yeah. Sp- spring ahead, fall back. So tomorrow right. night, you set your clocks back one hour. Ergo, you get another hour of sleep. But why we... I like it. I like it in the fall. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, the spring, not so much. But yeah. But there will be a, a little bit of when when we leave the station here, like on Monday, Diane, it'll be. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, how dark, dark it is. Right. But then in the summertime, yeah. it's like light till like nine o'clock. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So I, what, you're right. Why are we having this conversation? Why do people have to keep keep bringing this up? So, so. Diana, uh, are you are you surprised that we keep having this discussion every time there is a, a time change? I am, and I just think like we just need to scrap the whole thing. You know, so like, scrap the discussion or scrap daylight no, savings time. No, scrap daylight savings time altogether. So you don't, wait a sec. What about that extra hour of light in the summertime? Yeah, but it's not. It, it, it's just we lose uh, it in the fall. Yeah, we lose it in the fall. Well, what the hell's there to do in the fall? Well, think about how dark <laughs> it is for the little kitties getting up in yes. the morning too. You know, it's just I don't know. I'm not sure it's going to make that much of a difference either way. I mean, you know, people complain about it because the day after they're tired and they're kind of groggy for a day or so. But I don't know. Mm. It seems odd. Uh, Will, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, let's just block out the sun altogether. Get this done with. Yeah, like. <laughs> 
up in Nunavut, they're laughing at us. They're like, Puff, they think one hour is bad. <laughs> Finland, Sweden, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Nordic countries. Yeah. yeah. They don't get much. <laughs> All right. Enough of that. Uh, we, we talked about this issue regarding the flags. Uh, obviously, uh, the flags were lowered uh, due to the uh, situation after discovering the uh, bodies of indigenous kids below uh, the former sites of, Cam- of the Kamloops Residential School. Uh, then, of course, the problem, how do we get to Remembrance Day with raising the flag and lowering it? So the solution seems to be, and this was decided today, that they are going to, in fact, raise the flags on Sunday. They will lower them again for uh, Remembrance Day, and then when they go back up, they will have the orange flag of Every Child Matters below, and this is uh, on government institutions. Is this a good compromise, Diana? I think so. I think it's a fair compromise. I do. Is I, I really can't think of any other way to get out of this that's going to keep both sides of yeah. this discussion happy. Yeah, I agree. There has to be some sort of you know happy medium or middle point, and I think I think this is it. Well, your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about this. I mean, obviously, we've this has been on our minds, and I was thinking, well, what if the flag does just stay down? What if it stays down for a you know at its current position for a very, very long time, and this is just part of our history? I mean, that's what it's supposed to be down for and acknowledging. Now, that said, I know there's uh, some leaders of different indigenous communities who have said, "Yep, this sounds about this sounds all right." And besides, the focus shouldn't necessarily just be on the flag. <laughs> there's other things to well, take care you know- of. So, you know, the thing is, and I guess the discussion was, is if it's lowered all the time, then it sort of loses the significance of why it's lowered. If you raise it back up, you add the other flag to it, then people are going to go, well, what's that flag all about? And hopefully learn something here. And I think that's a pretty, and I think it is a pretty cool solution. Yeah, because Uh, I think we do need to lower the flags, obviously, on Remembrance Day. And so, I mean, the only way to do that is to bring them back up temporarily you know and, so. and they say that the orange flag will stay there until they have located and discovered everything that needs to be discovered below the uh below these former residential schools so i mean it seems like an interesting way forward also the in around uh, renaming things burlington's ryerson park to be renamed how far do we go with this do we uh do we stay with this or do we remove the name of uh, pierre elliott trudeau from the uh, airport in montreal who wants to weigh in uh that's an interesting uh analogy uh Pierre Trudeau. Um, I, it just getting to the point now where I mean I'm sure in Burlington they have called it Ryerson Park for a long time, and now there's there's four new names. It's going to take people a long time to wrap their heads around the new names. I'm just wondering. Um, I understand why they're doing it, but when does it almost become that every everything that is named Ryerson or Sir Johnny McDonald or everything is going to be changed, and that I think is going to cause confusion? Then. Well, well, I, I just want to know who's who exactly is calling for this. Is it actually the indigenous community, or is it a group of people that might? That's a good point. That might think what they're doing is for the best, but I mean, I can't. And I mean, I might be overstepping boundaries here, but. If you look at how much it costs to change the name of, let's say, Dundas Street in Toronto, That's a wouldn't wouldn't yeah. that money be better to? I mean, changing a street name's great, but so is clean drinking water. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's that yeah. too. And I don't know if I'm oversimplifying things, but like. I don't no, know. That's a very good point. And again, obviously a complex situation and uh, not one that's going to be easily resolved. All right. Another one that seems to be contentious with people in cities and towns and such fireworks. Uh, Hamilton is considering reviewing its fireworks bylaw. Apparently we've gone, we've come a long way since the burning schoolhouse. And now these things are like percussion bombs going off. I was out walking the dog last night. It was great. All I could hear was fireworks going off from people in our neighborhood celebrating uh, Diwali. But should Hamilton review fireworks, the bylaw? Ted, as far as what uh, size of fireworks? That's or? what it's coming down to. Apparently, they're getting a little large. Um, well, they can do what they want, but they also have to crack down on the supplier, right? So, if if people are buying those big ones from somebody, you know, it's um, there's not a lot of places that sell fireworks. It's almost like you're going in in the back of a garage and guys are going, pss, pss, a white van. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I just I'm sure there were people last night that wondered why the fireworks are going off in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, does it bother you when you hear fireworks? I'll get that. <laughs> um, it. It bothers me if I don't know why, and it bothers yeah. me if, you know, Victoria Day, I get it. Canada Day, I get it. I'm not sure, again, that people um, 
like if you would have told me last night that there were fireworks in my neighborhood going off, I would have wondered why they were going off because I consider myself fairly educated, but even I didn't know what was going on with the people celebrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. Diana? I live behind, uh, I back onto a park. <laughs> and so oh. I, uh, we get a lot of fireworks even just randomly. Um, and last night I actually totally blanked on the fact that when the fireworks were going off, I was like, are they celebrating Guy Fawkes Day early? Isn't that a British thing? But it was Diwali. And I was like, oh, the Festival of Lights. Correct. Okay, so now I got it. But um, there, there's people, I, I, mainly kids, I think, just goofing off in the park that just blow off fireworks for no apparent reason sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I've noticed that for sure, especially over the pandemic. People, I think, were just looking for an excuse to shoot off fireworks, Is even when they were told they're not supposed to. But yeah, if we're going to limit the percussion, because I've had ones that shook the house I was living in yeah, at the no, time. they get pretty loud, man. Yeah. yeah it's, and I think that's what people are, are, are upset about, is some of them look like the size of uh, pails, and then you light a wick on top, and, yep. and the windows shake. All right, thank you, Big Round Table. All right, uh, we certainly know what has happened uh, over the last several months, uh, years, uh, in regard to our relationship with China. And really, it's not just Canada and China. It's China's relationship with the rest of the free world, uh, which uh, opinion of uh, the Chinese Communist Party has uh, been falling of late for obvious reasons, including the two Michaels and uh, just the general bullying that we've seen uh, from them. And many have been asking Canada to change its policy on Ottawa, including uh, the discussion of Huawei and 5G and such. Uh, now it seems that uh, a new Indo-Pacific strategy is being drawn up by Ottawa. What does that mean? Does it signal anything? Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow of the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald laurie Institute end with us now charles thank you for the time hope you're well hi scott we have many say um we have heard many say that uh canada has to broaden its scope uh in the indo-pacific uh, well beyond china and and look at other markets that are there are we doing that are we seeing a change in attitude here oh god i mean you know i've seen this movie three times before where the government mm. says they're about to do a, a reset with china or they've put together a, a, a unit to try and come up with policy options. You know, you remember when they were going to do the reset, and then Mr. Champagne said, uh, who was our foreign minister at the time, said, well, we can't do a reset because China's always changing. So, you know, it just, it's been this kind of virtue signaling saying, we're going to do something about it, we're thinking about it, we're working on it. And the latest one, uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy, evidently this has been ongoing for some months, but you don't actually see any evidence of the government actually doing anything. You know, a recommendation will be made, it'll be sent up to cabinet, and uh, in the past, there's never been enough consensus to actually adopt any of these things. So the upshot is that Canada has no China policy, and I'm really wondering when we're going to get one. So, you know, I think it's a good idea uh, to look into this. They've changed the phrasing from Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific, which, you know, suggests more focus on India and Southeast Asia. But uh, frankly, um, you know, until I see something that actually goes beyond suggestions that we probably want to do something different maybe later on sometime, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, cracking out the champagne. We seem to be the only democracy that's having this problem uh, jumping on board. Um, have we not learned anything from the two Michaels situation? Are we trying to have our cake and eat it too? What's happening here? Why are we dragging our feet? Well, I think that, you know, certainly our allies want us to get into compliance with the Western Alliance to try and get China to to get into the you know, to play by the rules of the international rules-based order that, you know, the rise of China, China becoming a strong and powerful nation is a good thing, but, uh, you know, you have to abide by the standards of diplomacy and trade, which maintain a, a peaceful and stable and prosperous world. And, you know, up to now, uh, with the hostage diplomacy and the kidnapping of, of Michael Kovrick and Michael's favor, and then economic coercion by disrupting our agricultural um, contracts with China and resulting in enormous losses to our Canadian farmers. You know, China hasn't been prepared to do that. I, you know, I, 
certainly we're getting statements out of our ambassador in Beijing, Dominic Barton, which suggests that now that the emotional issue of Meng and the Michaels are, are yeah. has been resolved, that we can uh, move on to uh, you know en- enhance our our trade and investment engagement. It looks as if the Canadian government wants to play both sides of the street to get favors from China for you know accepting um, China's um, violations of of uh, the, the norms of relations between states and expecting the U.S. and Australia and Japan and South Korea and so on to uh, to cover the security part of it. Um, so do we do, do we think we can change the view of the Chinese Communist Party on this? Or you know, and this may sound naive and uh, and way off in, in space somewhere. Are, are there too many politicians with too much invested in China and for their own sake don't want to ruffle feathers? I think that's more or less it. You know, there's a lot of influential Canadian um, companies who have lucrative relationships with Chinese communist business networks who have influence in the political circles and, you know, are able to provide benefits to politicians who don't rock the boat on China, whereas what we should be doing in the Canadian interest is diversifying our trade away from an unreliable and trustworthy partner. So is it too late for any of that, Charles, considering how embedded they are in education and military and and what have you? I mean, oh, do we just lose them? <laughs> Uh-oh. All right. Uh, Charles Burton with us, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute. And clearly we'll have to pick this up again as, uh, for some reason, Ottawa keeps dragging its feet and, uh, unlike the rest of the world, uh, is trying to play, uh, play both sides of the fence with the Chinese Communist Party, and no one can seem to figure it out, other than there's way too much money invested there uh, with some people who are very close to the control of all of this. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Coming up after 6 o'clock, the pregame, uh, Ticats NBC, the game, uh, NBC, NBC, not NBC, and uh, pregame 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, the kickoff, and, of course, the fifth uh, quarter with Rick Zamperin at the end of it all. All right, we've been talking about this uh, earlier on, and uh, it, it's pretty fascinating, almost movie-like, and um, we're not doing this because we have to. We're doing this to see if we can, but uh, basically, um, they're going to, um, well, you know, there's meteorites and, and, um, and asteroids flying around, and, you know, the movies, if one's all of a sudden coming towards Earth, what do you do? Well, you have to send something up there to knock it off its course. So I think that's kind of what we're doing here, but let's get the official stance. Uh, Paul Delaney with us, professor of physics and astronomy at York University, and is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Happy to be here. (laughs) Uh, So in layman's terms or layperson's terms, Paul, explain what's happening here. Well, you're, you're right on the money. We're trying to test whether or not we have the capability of deflecting a rock in space. And so it's a little bit like the premise of Armageddon. We're not trying to destroy this particular rock. The rock in question, by the way, is by the name of Dimorphos. Uh, and Dimorphos is part of a binary asteroid. So we're sending an object up, a spacecraft by the name of DART, Double Asteroid Rendezvous uh, Test. And we want to impact that onto Dimorphos and see whether or not we can change the orbit of Dimorphos around its companion, Didymos. If we can, then we will know exactly the amount of energy we've delivered to this rock, the trajectory we've done to the rock. We will basically verify our calculations. You know, everybody thinks that you can sort of send up an object, slam it into another object, and, you know, deflect it. That's all theory. We would like to see whether or not that actually does happen before the real thing comes at us. And that's what DART is all about. Deflect by how much, how far? Uh, And and does it depend on, obviously, how big the craft is that hits it? I guess it does. But uh, what is success here? Right. So the energy, it's all about energy. So energy is mass and speed. And so we will know the energy that we are delivering to Dimorphos. And that's what counts. The energy will translate to a small push. And we are talking small here. We are talking about changing the orbit of Dimorphos by centimeters. But 
that change should be reflected in what we call the orbital period around its parent object. So by monitoring from Earth in the weeks following the impact of DART, we will see what change we have affected. And that change will depend upon the energy as well as our overall understanding of the, the geology, if you will, of dimorphous. So this is what we're trying to better understand. How much energy into a rock of a certain structure, you know, what is it that we need to do to scale that up, if you will, to the real thing in the event that a big rock is coming at us. And by the way, Dimorphos is about 160 meters in diameter. If that object came down on Hamilton, you know, it's it's game over for most of the northern hemisphere of our planet. Mm. So uh, it's called DART, uh, very appropriately, I guess. But yes. talk about this craft. How, what is it like that is being sent up? And is it like literally crash into the side of this thing? That's literally what it is. Uh, you know, it doesn't have much in the way of instrumentation. It has a little bit, but basically it's got a camera. Uh, and the aim of the exercise is literally to target it, uh, you know, to, to, to hit dimorphous. It's carrying nothing else. Uh, its, its weight comes in, as memory serves, at about 1,000 kilograms. So it's, it's reasonably heavy, but mm. it's the speed that is going to help us deliver the amount of energy that is required. And so, you know, hitting objects, that's not trivial uh, because, you know, Dimorphos and Didymos are moving around the sun at tens of kilometers a second. So hitting this object exactly the way we want is non-trivial to begin with. NASA is confident that they can do that. But it is that impact with a known amount of energy, which is what we need to understand with respect to the change that we will affect of this object. And you put all that together and it'll tell us basically whether or not we can use this uh, deflecting mechanism as a viable defensive mechanism against the object down the road that is coming straight at us. If we've got a, you know, a few years in advance uh, to know about it, can we deflect it with a dart type intercept and therefore save the planet. Could something go wrong here, or do they have a pretty good idea what's going to happen, what the outcome will be? Oh, we have a very good idea. The The worst yeah. that could happen here is that, in fact, we can't deflect this object as much as we want. Uh, there's no no doubt uh, that it's going to miss the Earth. This, this particular near-Earth object doesn't come closer than about 11 million kilometers this time around. Its closest approach is sort of like about 4 million kilometers. So... We're, we're in no danger of deflecting this thing and hitting ourselves in the foot, so as to speak. That's not going to happen. But whether or not the deflection is what we're expecting, that's what counts. And that, as I said, will be measured in centimeters, but we'll measure that centimeter movement in terms of time for the orbital period. But no, we're in no danger here. This, this cannot backfire on us. But the worst thing that could happen is that it doesn't pan out the way we want, and then this mechanism as a deflecting tool to protect the planet, will be literally written off. I mean, you know, if, it, if we can't move the uh, Didymos the way we want, then forget it. This, this is just wow. not a viable mechanism. All the more reason, kids, for you to keep up on your math and your physics. Uh, yeah. Wow, this is incredible to think about. Paul Delaney, Professor of Physics and Astronomy, York University, another fascinating segment. Thanks, Paul. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Coming up next, it is the Ticats game time, 7 o'clock, kick uh, pregame starting at 6, and, of course, the fifth quarter after it's all over with Rick Zamper. And as always, we leave it to you, the good listener, for the last word. Zanoski, wee wee with a mask.